good to be gathered together in worship and good to see your faces and those of you who are online joining us either today in this moment or maybe later on this week. Um, we're just grateful to be together, united by the Spirit. This morning, our call to worship comes from, is based on Psalm chapter 8, and I would invite you to stand. We're going to use the words on the screen. Um, so if you want to put them up, this will be, the all is in orange, and this will be the phrase that you say throughout, and we'll hear the words of Psalm chapter 8. Let's do that together. Jehovah, our Lord, your powerful name fills the earth with beauty. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. Jehovah, our Lord, your powerful name fills the earth with beauty. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Jehovah, our Lord, your powerful name fills the earth with beauty. Yet you made human beings only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all creation under their authority and care. Jehovah, our Lord, your powerful name fills the earth with beauty. Let's join our voices in singing for the beauty of the earth. loving Father. You are the source of everything good and beautiful that we know. And in your Son, Jesus Christ, all things hold together and are sustained. 
We thank you this morning for the wonder of your creation and for the gifts of relationships of all kinds. We are especially mindful today on Father's Day of the gift of fathers, fatherhood, and the father figures in our lives. We thank you for any ways in which the fathers in our lives have pointed to you, our true and perfect father. For the ways in which today stirs up heartache or grief, we ask for your comfort and presence to hold us together. We are also mindful of Juneteenth and how it is celebrated today in our country. For freedoms that are extended to all, we thank you. And for the ways in which true freedom is not experienced, we ask for your spirit to break those chains. We ask that as we continue to worship, our hearts would be centered on you above all. We ask you to remove any barriers that prevent us from experiencing and trusting your love for us. And we ask that your love would flow through us to each other. In the name of Jesus Christ, your son, and through the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work within us, we pray. Amen. Let's continue to sing together. Child. 
children of God, it is because of the Father's love that we have peace with God and with each other. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you to share a sign of that peace with your neighbor and those online to greet each other in the chat. The Lord be with you, Fellowship Church. This morning, we have the great privilege and celebration of recognizing uh, the unique gifts that God gives by the power of the Spirit uh, to folks at Fellowship Church who have been called to be a part of our consistory as elders and deacons. Deacons and elders are called to serve as Christ served. We look to them to be people of spiritual commitment, exemplary life, compassionate spirit, and sound judgment. Deacons are set apart for a ministry of mercy, service, and outreach, while elders are set apart for a ministry of care and for the welfare and order of the church. Elders and deacons together with the ministers form the consistory to lead God's people in proclaiming good news to the poor, righteousness to the nations, and peace among all people. Over the last number of months, this congregation has gone through a process of nominating, of interviewing, and then finally electing as, an, as a uh, consistory and then as a congregation, folks to be ordained, to be an, uh, installed to be in elders and deacons at fellowship. Through that process, uh, God has revealed to us a number of folks to be elders and deacons, respectively. So I'll, when I introduce you by name, I'd invite you to come forward. To the office of deacon, we have elected Dave Armstrong, Brian Douthit, Nathan Dreyer, Stacy Hoy, and Rachel Walsh. They may come forward. And joining them, to the office of elder, Dwayne Bosma, Nancy McDonald, Terry Pollard, Paul Reinen, and Christy Rosendahl and to the office of President Linda Milanowski westorp What a great group of people, huh, Pastor Tierra? Yeah, they're <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, I have some questions for you this morning. Um, so first, do you confess together with us and the church throughout the ages your faith in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? If you do, say yes truly with all my heart. Yes truly with all my heart. And do you believe in your heart that you are called by Christ's church and therefore by God to this office? If you do, say yes truly with all my heart. And do you believe the books of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God and the perfect doctrine of salvation, rejecting all contrary beliefs? If you do, say yes, truly, with all my heart. Yes, truly, with all my heart. And will you be loyal to the witness and work of the Reformed Church in America, using all your abilities to further its Christian mission here and throughout the world? If you do, say, I will, and I ask God to help me. And if the elders could step forward, 
Elders, will you faithfully, diligently, and cheerfully study God's word, encourage spiritual growth, maintain loving discipline, and provide for the proclamation of the gospel and the celebration of the sacraments, if you will, say, I will, and I ask God to help me. I will, and I ask God to help me. Wonderful. step forward as they step back. As deacons, will you faithfully, diligently, and cheerfully manifest Christ's love and care, gather and distribute the offerings of God's people, visit and comfort the distressed, minister to the poor and needy, and strive to advance God's reign of justice and peace? Thank you. You may step back. Fellowship family, um, if you could please rise to affirm your covenant with the elders and the deacons whom God has given us. Beloved in Christ, do you receive these deacons and elders as elected and ordained servants of Christ? Do you promise to encourage and pray for them? Do you promise to labor together in obedience to the gospel for the unity, purity, and peace of the church, the welfare of the whole world, and the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ? If so, please say... We do. We do. Offices of elder and deacon so highly that we call them an ordained position in many ways similar to and uh, uh, to the office of a uh, pastor. And so they are uh, together with the pastors, the leaders of the congregation. So this morning we will be ordaining some folks that have not yet been ordained. Once you're ordained, you're always ordained, so we don't have to do it twice. But we will do that um, with, through a prayer and with the laying on of hands as the practice is set before us. So if you have not been ordained yet, would you please step forward? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Nathan Dreyer, for Dwayne Bosma, for Brian Douthit, and for Rachel Walsh. God of grace, pour out your Holy Spirit upon them. We thank you for the unique gifts that you have given to each one of them, and we ask that you might bless them as they serve your church as either a deacon or elder. In Christ's name, amen. You may step back. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only King and Head of the Church, I declare that Brian Douthit, Nathan Dreyer, Stacy Hoy, and Rachel Walsh are ordained to the office of deacon. Some of them were at the previous service. You'll get their pictures are all up there for you this morning. We invited them to come to one or both of the services. And now uh, we also uh, want to say thank you to the Spirit for giving these folks gifts and their willingness to serve. But we also have a big thank you this morning to also to say to Jeff Chansma, who has been serving for the last uh, couple years as uh, are the president of our congregation. Little did he know about three years ago when he ag agreed to become the president of our congregation that he would, you know, have to deal with a global pandemic, a bunch of shifting sands in the church, and on top of that, you know, a pastoral transition. So, Jeff, we are so grateful uh, that you uh, have been with us through uh, the last couple of years. I can't think of a better person to go into a storm with than Jeff Jansma. He is steady, he is loving, he is caring, and he walks alongside of you. He has a big vision for the church and for how we might use the gifts that God has given us. And Jeff, we are tremendously grateful uh, for your service as president of the congregation. You want to say something? I, I think I missed 
We'll circle back, yeah, whatever. Uh, and I would be really sad about Jeff uh, not being the president anymore. First off, I'm not sad because he's not leaving anywhere. He's sticking around with us, and he wants to keep coming alongside of us. And we have an incredible uh, new president in Linda Milanowski-Westorp. If you haven't gotten the chance to know her, one of the unique uh, gifts of Fellowship Church is that we have this uh, position called president of the congregation, which is supposed to be, in many ways, intended to be a direct conduit between the congregation and the consistory. And so if you haven't had a chance to meet Linda, she is a great leader, but also super relational and warm and would be eager to hear from you. So uh, thank you, Linda, for your willingness to serve. Uh, and we will be installing her now uh, to the office of uh, elder and president of the congregation. Did you have something to circle back on there, Christy? Is that what you said? I mean, Christy, I was looking at Christy when I was talking to you. Christy's like, no, thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nancy McDonald and Paul Reinen, but also Christy Rosendahl to the office of elder. Nice, thank you. <laughs> so now we will install these people in the sight of God and God's people. I declare these are newest members of the Fellowship Church consistory, and I ask each one of you to be faithful in performing your duties. Magnify the one who has called you to these high and holy offices. Be zealous for the Church of Christ hospitable, prudent, upright, devout, and self-controlled, love, goodness, holding always to the mystery of the faith. Thank God. May every grace of ministry rest on these elders and deacons, keeping them strong and faithful, that your church may prosper in peace. Grant them wisdom, courage, discretion, and benevolence, that they may fulfill their charge to the glory of Jesus Christ. Bestow your grace on these people that they may support these deacons and elders with prayer, cooperation, and encouragement to guard them from growing weary and doing what is right. And inspire your whole church with your spirit of power, unity, and peace. Grant that all who trust may live together in love through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Hey, help me welcome the newest members of the Fellowship Church Consistory. You guys may be seated. That's it. One of the pastors here where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. If you are new or if you're visiting with us this morning, first off, a hearty welcome. We're glad that you're here. And second off, uh, if you'd like to let yourself be known, there are connection cards at the back of the sanctuary or at the Welcome Center that you can fill out. And we also want to say a special thank you and welcome to those that are worshiping with us online. This morning, I was supposed to be telling you and celebrating with you some really cool uh, experiences for our high school and middle school students. And they are still going to be really cool experiences, and they've had a few hiccups in the last couple days. On Friday, there were a group of 8th graders that were going to St. Thomas Reformed Church, our partner church there, to do some work in the community, but also enjoy the island and do some leadership training as they became high school students. And on Friday, after as they were preparing to get to the airport in Detroit, 
Detroit, after spending the night in Detroit, uh, they found out that their flight was canceled. And on top of that, there was no flights on Saturday or Friday to get them to the island. And now you have to find tickets for nine people uh, to get to St. Thomas uh, with a two-day notice. So uh, they are, thank you, Jesus, uh, right now as we speak, flying two days late. Uh, not from Detroit, but bonus, they got to drive to Chicago to see a second great Midwest American city. And Bryce called me then last night and said, you know, I heard that the middle school youth group had had some hiccups, and we thought we might as well have some hiccups too. So they drove down to West Virginia yesterday to do another week of service uh, in Appalachia, and they discovered uh, upon arriving in this tiny, tiny, tiny village remote town in West Virginia mountains that the power had gone out for, because of a huge storm for the next five days. Uh, and they had no cell phone service, internet, or uh, the church had no pumping water. So they were uh, curious getting curious about alternative options and they are uh, seeking to, they think that maybe they spent the night last night in a, a church without any power using just their cell phones while they had battery uh, and they're hoping to uh, do a little national parking today and then maybe we'll see what happens. So we'll be praying for our high school students as they figure out uh, how they can adapt down in West Virginia. I did look up just for them uh, because I'm a kind and generous pastor. I looked up a hotel for them, but you know the nearest hotel is like 28 miles away from the town that they're serving on Mountain Road. So uh, it'll be curious what happens, but we're we're praying for them. Uh, another little update is that this past week, thank you for thinking of uh, those folks from our denomination who gathered in Pella, Iowa uh, as delegates to the Reformed Church in America's General Synod. You can read a little update about that. There's a little link in the email. I was uh, one of the delegates there, and I will say that uh, while uh, I, I didn't go with really big expectations, it went a lot better than I expected, and I'm really grateful to be a part of uh, the denomination, though it was hard work at times. Um, it was a really meaningful work, and we, uh, there's a lot of good things that we can celebrate uh, about what God is doing in and through uh, our greater denomination, the Reformed Church in America. One more. We have lots of announcements this morning. Uh, one more uh, little blurb is that uh, on July 3rd is a holiday weekend, and we are going to be having just one service on that Sunday morning at 9.30 in the morning. So if you are usually here at 10 or 30 or at the 10.35 service for some of you or the 10.40 service for others, uh, you will be after worship is done. Uh, so come at 9.30 uh, in a couple weeks for the July 3rd service. That was no shame. I would be the same way, or I am the same way. Uh, refugee uh, team, uh, we want to give thanks for uh, a number of folks that have been walking alongside of a refugee family that we adopted only six short months ago, but they are uh, almost completely independent of us now, and we celebrate and give thanks for that. And so we are transitioning from being a mentorship team to just being friends with our fr uh, friends from Afghanistan. Uh, and I want to give a special thanks uh, to Bob and Ann Ellis and also Mary Moore for leading that team, uh, but also for the many of you that have come alongside of them, either uh, as friends or uh, through the, the housewarming shower that we uh, had a couple of months ago. So let's uh, give thanks to, to God for Bob and Ann Ellis and also Mary Moore and for their leadership of that team.
And while we're in the spirit of giving thanks, big thanks to many of you who helped out uh, this past week with uh, two really cool ministries that started uh, in Meetup and Eatup again this summer, uh, our ministry at, at the uh, camps that serve uh, some of the migrant folks in our community um, out at Quincy, and then also uh, to many people, uh, over 65 folks helped out with um, VBS this past week too. Uh, and so we're really grateful for the ways in which you, Fellowship Church, are, are living into your mission in those two uniquely uh, special ways. And this morning, uh, as we celebrated VBS and the 90-some students that were here, we thought we should bring a little bit of VBS to Fellowship Church on Sunday morning. So if you are here uh, and have, were at VBS at all last week, I'd like to invite you to come forward now, and we're going to sing a little song. Miss Betsy is going to help us lead that song. But if you were at VBS at all as a leader or as a student uh, or a participant, uh, I'd invite you to come forward, and Miss Betsy is going to help share. And we can all participate too, right? I mean, we're... We're not too old to play along. Uh, Miss Betsy would love uh, for us to uh, sing along with them. That was incredible. I heard her little people. Um, before we begin, would you, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that as our youths led us in worship to help us to understand that you are an awesome God 
um, that you are power and wisdom and just awesomeness and amazingness. And we are so grateful for your fatherly care of us. We are thankful for all the ways that you have protected and provided for us, um, for the ways that you have guided us um, back into fellowship with you. And we thank you for the ways that you continue to restore us um, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, to conform us to the image of Christ, to um, help us to understand and experience your grace, um, and to know and to walk in your truth. As we turn toward the scriptures, as we continue to worship um, through study, Lord, we ask that you open our hearts and you open our minds and you help us to see you and hear you more clearly and be transformed by what we encounter. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Well, my name is Tierra. I am one of the pastors here at Fellowship, if I have not yet met you. Um, and we are in the second week of a series that began last week, a series that we're calling The Questionable Life. Uh, it's a series that is essentially on questions, on life's biggest questions, uh, the existential questions, they're the, per the perplexing questions, sometimes the scary, probing questions that churn in our souls. And believe it or not, the very questions that are asked in the scriptures. Last week, Reverend Ross kicked us off with a question asked just before the crucifixion of our Savior, what is truth? Uh, and today, we encounter the very first question ever asked in the scriptures, and it's a question that God addresses to humanity in and through the first humans. And so, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit in the, of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a couple years ago, I was sitting in a coffee shop in Grand Rapids. It's a coffee shop in my neighborhood. It's right around the corner for me. It is Roaster Coffee is a picture of it. And um, as is my custom on Saturday mornings, I am usually there either or at that early bird, which is another coffee shop in Grand Rapids. They have more food than, than this place. So, uh, But I'm usually at one of those two coffee shops catching up on a sermon or catching up on work or catching up on that more creative work that's harder to do in an open concept office. How many of you are in open concept offices? Yeah, so <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, so I'm usually sitting there, usually in that middle seat. It's my favorite seat in the whole coffee shop. And um, earbuds in, clacking away at my laptop and drinking a ton of coffee. Uh, and this particular day, I happened to be working on a sermon, specifically on Genesis 3. 
and I, uh, <laughs> I finish my coffee, my second double shot latte of the morning. I take out my earbuds, I turn around to face the counter, and I find myself in the middle of an, a very kind of awkward, kind of eerie stare down between the guy is like an older kid standing in the doorway drinking a courtesy water, um, and the barista who is behind the counter. Now, I'm not always great at picking up on social cues, but I think I figured out in this moment, you, you can't order coffee right now. Like something's happening, I'm not sure what's happening. I'm trying to figure out what's happening, trying to watch what's happening, and then I literally I blink, and the kid runs to the counter, snatches the tip jar, and runs out the door. Now, I am stunned. The barista, stunned. Everyone else in the coffee shop, stunned. And then I think to myself, man, this is gonna make a great sermon illustration one day. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome, I'm happy my neighborhood terror is, uh, <laughs> is helpful. Uh, so I believe it was Reinhold Niebuhr who once said that original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Meaning, sin is ubiquitous. It is pretty undebatable. Everywhere we look, it's around us. You get the breaking news alert, or you, you get the paper, the Sunday Times, or the Wall Street Journal, and you realize that a person filled with hate has attacked people at a grocery store in New York, or that another person has attacked people on a subway in New York, or, or that a gunman has attacked a school in Uvalde, Texas, or that someone has um, attacked people at a church in California, or Alabama, or Iowa that human traffickers have targeted a young girl out for a Dallas Mavericks game with her dad, or that a Ponzi scheme in India has dwarfed or completely destroyed people's life savings to the tune of billions of dollars, or that shamefully a person was abused by a pastor or a priest, and worse, their church not only knew about it, but pretended it didn't happen. Niebuhr is right. No one need ever ask if sin exists. And one need not be a Christian to know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. But why? That's the question I think that Genesis 3 seems to be answering. Now, the ancients decided to describe a very historical moment, an actual moment in time when humanity fell into sin, uh, but using some mythological features and elements. This story conveys a central truth that is not just relevant to the beginning of time and how things became the way they are, but also helps us to understand and account for how things are the way they are right now. And yet, even in this story, there might be some mythological features that seem kind of odd to us that actually point to something really fascinating that the text or the writer is trying to say to us. For instance, in Genesis 3, we encounter a very crafty serpent who speaks. A very crafty serpent who speaks I do a lot of hiking. I run into snakes on the trail. Um, it doesn't take much for me to not want to be near the snakes. A talking snake, that would be even worse. <laughs> so, uh, so now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And Judeo, the Judeo-Christian tradition has taken for granted that the serpent is Satan. In fact, uh, when we read about, um, when we read through Revelation, the final book um, in our scriptures, uh, that is precisely how 
the ancient serpent is referred to, uh, the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. That's Revelation 12. Uh, and he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, Revelation 20. Uh, Jesus himself also seems to associate not only scorpions, but also snakes with uh, the devil and evil. Uh, St. Augustine, a fourth century theologian and church father, a brilliant man whose theology has deeply influenced the church's uh, thinking around a number of things, including sin, uh, he says that the serpent signifies the devil. Uh, I believe a painting is called The Triumph of Augustine. It's, I, I can't see the date anymore, but I think that's 17th century. Uh, Triumph of Augustine, I'm guessing that's like the 17th century version of how was it at the office today, Augustine? Crushed it, crushed it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so and that's exactly what it looks like when you're crushing it at the office. <laughs> so uh, John Calvin um, also takes some cues from the scriptures and he is a 16th century, uh, seventh, second generation reformer. Uh, and he says, um, that the serpent was Satan's instrument. Slightly different, but still kind of in the same um, kind of universal theme that we observe, that the serpent was either the devil or, or, or in league with um, the devil. Now, that's a weird thing to insist on. Um, we don't usually talk about the devil, and we're usually a little wary of people who do. Um, sometimes I meet people on dating apps, and they talk about the devil, and I'm like, yep, that means swipe left on you. <laughs> so, so we don't usually talk that way. Um, and yet, in our scriptures, we find this language, um, not only of devils, but also of, of, of angels, and we find this language, this very specific language about um, Satan, a, a person who is um, the source or the author of evil and sin. And we see this in the very beginning of our scriptures in Genesis 3. So why insist on this? And why, why does it matter? Why does this come up in our scriptures? Why is this throughout our scriptures? Uh, I think it comes down to one word, one word, and it's tov. Let me hear you say tov. Tov is a Hebrew word. Many of you probably already know it. It means good. Uh, it is a word that we encounter in the first, the very first chapter of Genesis, this word tov. Uh, and when we see it, it's actually what God is saying over creation as creation comes into being by his word. Uh, on the for, for instance, on the first day, uh, God brings forth light by his word. Uh, and at the end of the day, God beholds what he created and he sees that it was tov. Yeah. And on the second day, God separates the earth from the sky. He creates the expanse. Um, and then on the third day, God creates dry land and also plants. And at the end of the day, God beholds what he created and sees that it was? Only he says it twice. So it was? Yeah. And on the fourth day, God creates the sun and the moon. And at the end of the day, God beholds what he created and he saw that it was? And on the fifth day, God creates birds and fish, and at the end of the day, he beholds what he created, and he sees that it is. And on the sixth day, God creates um, land animals and human beings, and then he looks out over, over creation, and he sees that it is. And then when he finishes all of his creative, creative work, God surveys the entirety of creation, and behold, it wasn't just tov, it was tov me'od. Let me hear you say tov me'od. It means abundant good, plentiful good, very good. It wasn't just tov, it was tov me'od. Why the repetition? Seven times in Genesis 1 we are told that creation is good, 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 good. Tov me'od, very good. Why the insistence? Because the ancients wanted us to know that God himself is goodness that he is goodness with the capital G, that he is the good from whom all things flow and all things come back. God is good. 
And therefore, he created a, 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 a cosmos that was what? Very good, that it was Tob, that it was Tob Ma'od, that God then is therefore the creator of a very good world, and therefore not the author of evil and sin. And so not only do the scriptures identify the ancient serpent as the author of sin and evil, it seems indeed that the role of Satan is to tempt or entice humanity into sin. We see this in the life of Jesus, who after fasting in the wilderness for 40 days is tempted by the devil in Luke chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews says of this moment that Jesus is like us. He's our savior. He's our high priest because he himself was tempted and tried as we are. And I think we hear that or we read those words and I think we forget what that means or we forget that it's a real thing until we really listen to the words spoken to our Christ in the weakest moments of his own earthly life. Back in Luke chapter four, if you are the son of God, then just turn these stones into bread. If you really want power and authority and glory, then just switch teams, just join my team. If God really cares about you, if God really cares about you, then, then he'll protect you, the devil says to him. And as he die in agony and humiliation on the cross, taunted, scoffed at, mocked by the people standing before him, if you really are the son of God, if you really are the Christ, the Messiah, if you really are the one who can heal others and save others, then save yourself. Save yourself. You hear the deceptive whispers in there. If God, your so-called father, really cares about you, wouldn't he protect you? If you really are the son of God, shouldn't you get whatever you want whenever you want it? If you really want power and glory, maybe you should just switch teams. If you are the one in whom and through whom everything was made, then why bother with this painful, agonizing, humiliating cross business? Isn't it interesting that the words spoken to Jesus in his weakest moments sound an awful lot like the ones spoken to us in our weakest and most desperate moments? The deceptive whispers convincing us that the tip jar really belongs to us in the first place. Or maybe that God was wrong to deprive us of what's inside. Or maybe that if God really loved us, if he really cared about us, if he was really a good father to us, we wouldn't have to be in the position where we needed to steal the tip jar. We see the same twisting, not only in the life of Jesus, not only in our own lives, but also in the encounter between the first humans and the ancient serpent. Did God really say, is the fruit really forbidden? Will eating the fruit really turn out as badly for you as God says it will? If you really want wisdom, then maybe, maybe you should just take it. Eve buckles under the pressure. She sees the fruit is good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And so she took of its fruit. Uh, our text says she took of its fruit. She didn't just like pick it up. She literally like grasps at the fruit. She takes it. She seizes it. She seizes the fruit. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Now, I've been reading this story since I was a kid. Um, I'm a preacher's kid. I got my first little children's storybook Bible, and I was able to read this story in a slightly different language uh, than, than what we have in our text. Uh, I believe this is the ESV version that I'm using. Uh, as I got a little bit older, I got my teenage study Bible, and it was the King James Version. It was from my dad. Um, and I, I remember asking at one point, like, what language is this? And he said, it's God's language. Um, so... <laughs> 
<laughs> all of his Christmas gifts for like five years were any version but the King James Version <laughs> from me. <laughs> uh, so I have wrestled with this text um, so many years and so many times um, and asking a lot of questions of the text, trying to understand the, the world that we, that we live in, um, the, the sin that we inherited, the sin that we commit, uh, but also asking other questions too. As I, as I got older, as I went to seminary, questions like, is it a myth? Or, or is it critiquing all the other ancient Near Eastern myths? Is it, is it historical? Is it, is it true? And those are great questions. Um, and I'm sure you could name a million and one questions that you might have as you read Genesis 3. Um, and I think there's one thing that um, it's easy to miss in asking and raising all those questions, and that is the motives of the writer. Because it seems that the writer is drawing our attention to one specific thing in the telling of this tale, the sheer deceptiveness of sin. Like when you really think about it, fruit is not a bad thing. Fruit is a great thing. It tastes great, it's got all kinds of nutrients and vitamins in it. Fruit is not a bad thing in and of itself. And neither is the wisdom that the serpent offers to Eve. Nor is the honor and the power and the authority and the comfort and the security that the serpent offers to our Christ. Nor is the honor, the power, the authority, the wisdom, the comfort, the security, the recognition for our contributions, the, the, the pleasure, the intimacy, the justice, the health, the success, the, the family and relationships and friendships and championship seasons and admissions to, to schools and universities that we've been trying to get into or that we've been hoping to get into for, for years or any of the other achievements or accomplishments that we might encounter in our lives. None of those things are bad things in and of themselves. And of course, if God is good and he created a very good world, then of course these created goods are indeed good. They're good things. The wisdom of the church observes that even the seven deadly sins are not about going after the worst things. They're not about going after the worst things, but about going after the best things, the good things, but in the worst ways possible. For instance, wrath is a disordered pursuit of justice, a very good thing or the correction of an injustice that maybe we or someone else we know have encountered. Or maybe sloth, not like the cute, but kind of creepy looking things that move really slow, but sloth. Sloth is a disordered pursuit of rest and leisure. Two really good things, but to the point where we become complacent or apathetic toward God. Or envy, that envy is a disordered pursuit of measuring up to our siblings or maybe to a parent and their successes and achievements, or maybe, maybe to a classmate or a teammate. That vainglory is this disordered pursuit of recognition for our contributions, maybe at home or in our community or in our workplace or in our school. That gluttony is a disordered pursuit of pleasure or comfort, but in food and drink. All of these sins, these seven classic sins that the church has talked about for centuries are the pursuit of good things, but in a disordered way which means that the temptation of humanity into sin is this, to love ordinarily good things, even things that have been created by God, more than we love God himself. That is disordered love. And the result is to go after those ordinarily good things, but in ways that are destructive, destructive of other people, destructive of creation, destructive even of ourselves, and ultimately and foremost, destructive of our relationship with God. Now, why do we do this? Because somewhere in the temptation to sin, we heard the lie that Satan was weaving all along. 
that God isn't a trustworthy father. That's what makes it so deceptive. And that's what this is about the entire time. It was never about the affair or the fling. It was never about the violence that evens the score. It was never about the tip jar in the coffee shop. The dangling of power and security and honor and food and drink and sex and accomplishments and all these other things, even tip jars, has always and is always a ploy to capture one thing, our primary and ultimate allegiance to God. Something was lost in this moment for the first humans, and not just for them, I think for us as well. Something was lost, maybe it was our innocence before God. Something like maybe our perfect goodness, our capacity to consistently, not just choose the good or will the good, but to consistently do so. But perhaps most significantly, loss of friendship. We were made for friendship with God. We were made to walk in the cool of the day with our God. We were made for loving, joyful friendship with God, our oldest and truest friend. And in and through our friendship with God, we express our allegiance to him. And that ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of the ancient serpent is to destroy that friendship, to do everything he possibly can to destroy that friendship. And he does it by convincing us that God is not good or trustworthy or caring or gracious or merciful and certainly not a friend to us. He even distorts the gifts that our oldest and truest friend grants to us to provide for us by using those gifts to distract us from our friend. The ancient server pretends that he's the one who really wants us to have those gifts, or that he's the one that has the power to give us those gifts if we would just betray our oldest and our truest friend and become the serpent's friend. And we believe the lies, and we finally cave, and we believe the lies of the ancient serpent and become friends with the serpent and betray our oldest and truest friend, he sits back and he accuses us and he shames us. But rather than come back to our friend, our oldest and truest friend, the damage has been done. We don't come back and fess up. We don't own our mistake. We withdraw even further. I heard you walking in the garden and I hid. I hid. Instead of trusting that our oldest and truest friend loves us and would forgive us, we hide. Genesis 3 tells the story of how humanity went from a joyful, loving friendship with God to a painful, alienating enmity with him. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. God calls out to a sinful, broken humanity, where are you? Where are you? This question is like the GPS locator for our souls. It's like the Find My app on our Apple devices. Where are you is an invitation. It's an invitation to examine our hearts and examine our lives. It's, it's an invitation to examine the disordered loves of our hearts. It's an invitation to examine the lies and the distortions that we've come to believe about ourselves and ultimately the lies and the distortions that we've come to believe about God, both of which drive the sinful thoughts and words and deeds of our own lives. But where are you is also pregnant with, with deep meaning for what God is doing in creation. It reveals God's instinct in the face of human sin. This is the God we encounter on the sidewalk after we've stolen the tip jar, whose holy presence impresses upon us both the destructive error of our ways and the abundant life that he welcomes us back into. He comes after us, invites us to turn back to him, and welcomes us back into that loving, joyful friendship with him through Christ. And it is through him that he restores not only our humanity, but all of creation along with it. 
That is good news. So one final thought. Um, when Jesus is asked to detail the greatest commandment, he responds, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. Why? Because the one who has our love has our allegiance. The one who has our love has our allegiance. It's why the evil one fights so hard for the heart of humanity in the garden. It's why he even fights for the heart of Jesus in the wilderness, because we follow and sacrifice and obey for what we and who we love. For instance, it's love of the game that makes an athlete train and compete at the highest and most excruciating levels of excellence. Go blue. It's love of the subject that drives an academic to study long hours. It's love of country that makes a soldier fight to the death on the battlefield. And it's love of family. Many of us who have experienced this up close and personal, it's love of family that drives a parent to sacrifice and work long hours to provide. Which is why the antidote to sin is not moralism. It's not necessarily just simply try harder. The antidote to sin is love. It's out of love that God calls out to a sinful, broken humanity. Where are you? Both then and continuously, even now, every day in our own lives. It's from love that Christ comes to die for us. It's from Jesus' profound trust in the Father's love for him and from his own deep, of the, deep love of the Father in return that enables him to withstand temptation, to be obedient, even in the weakest moments of his earthly life. And ultimately, it is the love of God poured into our own hearts by the Holy Spirit that in, not only transforms us, but enables us to obey, but also to love God in return. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, of our loving friend uh, God that asks us, where are you? And so this morning we are going to be given the opportunity to ask or to answer the question in a way by God of where are you? How are you? Where are you? In a moment we are going to pray uh, and we will do that with song and word, a, a prayer of confession, a way in recognizing that our love is not always allegiant to God alone. So let's pray together. the one that guides our hearts and yet we do confess that we are not always aware and obedient to your leading and guiding our hearts do have misplaced desires our hearts have sought pleasure over faithfulness our hearts have obsessively grasped for good things our hearts have not been allegiant to you alone Lord hear these our silent confessions of the very things our lips might be tremble to name and our hearts can no longer bear. 
Christ, our hearts are oftentimes so tempted, tempted to abandon, tempted to numb, tempted to lust, or tempted to obsess. Yet we know that your love in Jesus Christ is the truest fulfillment of our heart's desires. And so we pray, create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. We pray that because we know that you are the only one who can do it. So awaken our hearts to the promised gift of your indwelling spirit and our deep need and love for you.
and sisters in Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.